Hi, I'm Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. focus on the millennial vote. Since 2008, the millennial vote has been trending more and more Democratic. Good news for my side of the aisle. In 2016, that trend continued with Hillary Clinton receiving 55% of the millennial vote and Donald Trump getting 37%. And in 2017, it's gotten even worse for the Republicans. For example, in the Virginia gubernatorial race, Democratic candidate Ralph Northam got 69% of the youth vote compared to only 30% for Republican Ed Gillespie. We've got a terrific guest here today to help us better understand the millennial vote. Today we're joined by Kristen Soltis-Anderson. She is an expert on millennials. Uh, she is also the co-founder and partner of Echelon Insights, a polling firm here in Washington, and a co-host of the podcast, The Pollsters, with uh, Margie O'Meara. So Kristen, so, uh, so great to have you, and thanks Thank for being here. Thank you for here. having me. We're really excited to talk to you about young people today. Allie and I have uh, teenage children, so we get a lot from them, but you have great insight into what young people are thinking, how they're voting, their sort of attitudes and behavior, and you recently had a great piece in the, uh, in the New York Times talking about young people, the issues they care about. So just quickly wanted you to kind of um, you know, give us a general view of where young people are today. Sure. So this is a topic that I've been covering for the last, gosh, almost 10 years now. Um, I first started noticing just anecdotally uh, that a lot of people my age back in 2007, 2008 were gravitating away from the GOP, that I had always been sort of odd growing up in that I liked politics, but my friends never thought it was weird that I was conservative. And then suddenly around 2007, 2008, I noticed more friends thinking it was weird that I was conservative. It was weird that I was Republican. And I thought, well, maybe this is just my friends. Um, so I started studying it and discovered that actually it's not normal for young people to break so heavily away um, from one particular political party. Uh, and that you know, when Republicans lost in the presidential election in 20, uh, 2008, losing young voters by a two to one margin, that was not normal. That was, it's not that, oh, that's just how it always goes. Um, and so I, I got very concerned. I thought, okay, well, Republicans, you know, I get that Obama's a very popular guy, but I'm also seeing other things that suggest this isn't just about Obama. They're voting for Democrats down ballot, and we got to fix this. Four years go by, not a lot happens uh, on the right to try to win back young voters. 2012 election rolls around, and there was some effort to try to, to win young voters. Republicans did slightly better than they had in 2008, but still not enough, still lost young voters by a 20-plus um, point margin. Which brings us to today, where we have now had three presidential elections in a row of losing young voters by these you know, 20 or more point margins. Um, it is translating to voting down ballot. You see in something like the um, Alabama uh, Senate special election, where it's not just voters under 30 who are breaking for the Democratic candidate by, you know, 60 to 40 margins, but it's also voters now in their 30s up into the mid-40s who are breaking that way as well. The oldest edge of the millennial generation has gotten older and has not gotten more conservative. They have not gravitated back to the GOP. And so that's the message that I try to convey to folks, is that you you now have a lot of young voters who 
They may not like either political party. There's, I'm seeing poll after poll after poll where young voters think neither party really understands them or cares about people like them. And in registration, significant numbers are identifying as independents, but they're voting like Democrats. They're not, their vote is not truly kind of up for grabs in the way that we might think an independent voter is. And this is something that I worry, at least for the oldest millennials, it may be too late for Republicans to win them back. They've voted Democrat too many times. It's just baked in. But for the very youngest millennials, I mean, they're coming of age in an era of what it means to be Republican is to be a Trump Republican. And the data is overwhelming that young voters and are just not on the same page as President Trump on a whole host of issues, and his approval rating is, is really bad among this group. And so I think Republicans are in for... Uh, in for a, a lot of trouble, um, not just in the short term, but I really think the problem is a longer term, longer term issue. Well, Kristen, I'd always heard the statistic that if young people vote with any one party three times in a row, their partisan loyalties are essentially cemented from that point on. Have you found that to be true in your research when you look back, say even before 2007 and 2008, when you were noticing a migration towards the Democrats for young voters. You know, what about voters of that age group who started voting for Ronald Reagan in the 80s and, and so on? Have you Did you find that to be true? So Gallup took a look at all of the, the job approval uh, data that they had had going back decades and decades and all of their party identification data going back decades and decades. And they did find that if you came of age during the Reagan era, to this day you were more likely to be Republican than those who came before or after you. So these things do have long-term effects. Um, and the New York Times, the Upshot blog, they partnered with Democratic uh, firm Catalyst to do a survey. I think it was like 200,000 voters. And when you got 200,000 cases um, of, of people, you could break down results by individual birth years. And they built a model that projected sort of what party you were with in any given year of your birth over the course of your lifetime. And they, they basically found that things that happen to you politically when you're 18 have three times as much of an effect on your lifetime political behavior as something that happens when you're 40. So it's true that most 18-year-olds are not going to vote. It's true that most 25-year-olds are not going to vote. But the things that are happening around them and the impressions that are getting formed are still sticking with them. Um, and frankly, millennials are now the largest generation, 75 million, bigger than the baby boomers. We dramatically underperform our potential as a voter block, but that potential still exists. And as we are getting more and more energized, especially in, in the last year or so, I think we're going to have an outsized impact on upcoming elections in a way that I think certainly Republicans are not prepared for. And as a pollster and a data person, can you define millennials? Yes. Uh, so this is one of those terms that, uh, depending on where you look, the, the cutoff, the start time and the cutoff will be a little bit different. I roughly say born in the 80s and 90s. It's a very broad definition that puts me in the millennial generation, and it also puts my 19-year-old cousin in the generation. And I love her, but she and I don't have a ton in common. The one thing that we do have in common is that we have come of age in a time when it's hard to remember life before the internet. Um, I remember typing a paper in the sixth grade, I think, on a typewriter and having to go through like the card catalog at my middle school library. But uh, most of my life, I have had you know the ability to Google things and um, and for my cousin Brianna, you know, she has, I think, had a smartphone for most of her life. So, you know, I think that the expectations of speed, transparency, accountability, how much we're connected, um, 
I think those things all shape our worldview in a way that does make us unique, even if I, I do agree, at least in part, that the 20-year time span is maybe too large to be useful. What, so what are some of the key issues that are driving millennials? Some You mentioned some in the New York Times piece, such as climate change and immigration. Um, I also had read a piece that Huffington Post put out um, on their Highline uh, series. It was a very long piece on millennials, which there was a lot I disagreed with in terms of policy prescriptions for them. But <laughs> but um, but I, 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 I thought they did a nice job of sort of talking about the economic anxieties of millennials, which that was something that I just hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about because I had thought about them being more activists on some of the issues that you mentioned. But So what are you seeing? What's driving them you know, as they think about being part of a political party? Well, I think there are two big things that are at play here. One is that as a generation, we are somewhat risk averse or commitment phobic is maybe a better term. That if you came of age and were graduating from college around 2008, 2009, you were probably told, go to college, that's the smart thing to do. When you graduate, settle down, start a family, get married, buy a home, um, invest in the stock market, that's the smart thing to do. And then all of a sudden, all of those things started looking like kind of bad deals, right? Wow, I went to college and now I have all of this debt. And people are, getting married is so expensive and then people are getting divorced, so maybe I'll just live with my boyfriend for a while. And I don't think I want to invest in the stock market because dad's 401k evaporated and I'm not buying a house because I can't afford it. And also the house down the block just got foreclosed on and I don't want that to be me. And so all of these things that were supposed to be the like smart, responsible choice stopped looking that way. And so now, you know, Wall Street's trying to figure out how to get millennials to take their money out of cash and actually invest it in equities. And, you know, home builders are trying to figure out how do we get more millennials to, to take the plunge and buy a house. And so I think, one, it's that sense of that things are kind of fragile and that, you know, we were promised, okay, if we play by the rules, we can achieve a certain standard of living in the sense that, that we have been betrayed on that front. Maybe we were overpromised. Maybe that's the problem. Uh, but but I, th I think that's a big piece of it. And two, which I think is related, is this idea that if you work hard and play by the rules, you can't necessarily get ahead. That I think, especially for Republicans, we have this kind of optimistic view of, you know, you work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you can make it, um, even in the face of adversity. And I think that's a great message, but I think for a lot of millennials, they say, well, no, there's systemic racism. There are all sorts of things that prevent people who do the right things and play by the rules from actually getting ahead. And so, that's just happy talk, but that's not our reality. Well, and we've seen that with so many who have gone, sort of played by the rules, went to college, got a four-year degree, come out, and they can't get a job. And they're back home living with their parents or sleeping on their parents' couch or, or they're working minimum wage jobs. And they, you know, they got a degree in something that interested them. They fell into a minimum wage job because actually it was going to pay more than the unpaid internship that they were getting in mm -hmm. something that interested them. And then they fall into a trap of not seeing how they can actually have any kind of upward mobility. So interestingly enough, this was um, an ad that I was a part of uh, putting together for a group called Crossroads Generation. We were um, sort of affiliated with American Crossroads and with the College Republican National Committee in 2012. And we wanted to do an ad that would appeal to millennials. And so we put together this ad that it's, it's really neat looking. It's a time lapse of like a child's bedroom. It goes from like a nursery up to their toddler, up to their teenager, and then the room, you know, kind of empties out because they've gone to college. And the time lapse continues, and then it shows four years later, 
the kid come back into the room and on the wall is an Obama poster and four years later when the boy moves back he takes the Obama poster down. Uh, one, we almost got into, we, we had to answer some questions about this because we put the ad together before the Republican convention and Paul Ryan in his speech at the Republican convention mm-hmm. talks about millennials that. taking down the Obama poster. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, we got to drop the ad now. We were going to do this like right. later. We got to drop the ad now. And so then we got all these phone calls like, did you, did you, co-? Like, no, 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 no. This is coincidence. But we thought this would be an ad that was really appealing to young people because of that anxiety. Oh, you have to move back in with mom and dad. How horrible. And instead, it it wasn't really young people who were gravitating to the ad. It was the moms and dads who were like, I don't want little Jimmy moving back into his bedroom. So it was an example of a a learning experience for me of the things that, you know, we would assume, oh, this is causing a lot of anxiety for millennials. In some ways, actually, it wasn't. It was causing more anxiety for the parents. (laughs) I can uh, relate to that. I was going to say, as, as, uh, as two moms who have teenagers living with them, I guarantee you we're more anxious about them living with us when they're 25 than they are. Right, Liesl? Exactly. <laughs> well, I want to dig into this idea about college because one of the things I have found in some of the research that uh, my organization, House Majority Pack, has done with white working class voters is that college is not appealing to a lot of these voters. And so as Democrats, we often think, you know, one way to talk to voters who are anxious about their economic situation is to talk about making sure their kids can go to college, it's more affordable. That was not attractive to those voters, and that surprised me. So I'm kind of curious how how you're seeing millennials break down along those, let's call it college-educated and non-college-educated, especially the white non-college-educated millennials that are out there. And how, is there a big difference between those groups in terms of partisan affiliation? We know as a whole, millennials are much more democratic. Are both sets of those groups more democratic, or is it that some of them are just so overwhelmingly democratic, it's skewing the entire cohort? Well, I think part of the reason why the millennial generation as a whole is so democratic is because of how diverse the generation is. So, you know, if only 55% of the millennial generation is white, non-Hispanic, you've got 45% that is Latino, Asian American, African American, all groups that either vote heavily democratic or have trended much more that way in recent years. So if you take a, just a look at white millennials, I mean, Donald Trump won white millennials. Like, that's a fact that surprises people. Um, but I've also seen that used as a, as a reason for saying, oh, well, Republicans, you're fine. You won white millennials, as if somebody's going to just wave a magic wand. And, like, that's, that's not how reality works. Um, that's, that's not a good thing if you're only winning white millennials, um, and, and only by slim-ish margins. Uh, within millennials, within white millennials, I think there is a big difference between college and non-college. And I think we so often, when we imagine in our minds a white millennial, we imagine the, I went to college and then I got a master's degree in, you know, something that may not have tons of economic viability. (laughs) And and now I'm working at a startup and I skateboard around the office and I really want free snacks. And I'm like, you know, that sort of thing. And that's actually not the experience of most millennials that a significant number of them, as you mentioned, don't go to college. And I think for those, I think it's one potential weak spot for Democrats is it seems like a big message Democrats have is free college, we're going to deal with college student loan debt, and the student loan debt message is is not something that is applicable to I think even a majority of the millennial generation. So so that's one I think issue. But I think the other thing is that for millennials, 
they aspire to get more education, but I think we have to define college a little more broadly. That for most, that the non-traditional student is the traditional student. That going and spending four years on a leafy green campus is not the norm. Um, that now you've got community colleges that have risen in popularity. That you've got, um, you know, ways of getting education online through things like Western Governors uh, University, where mm -hmm. it's you know, highly high quality and it's competency-based and there are all sorts of new ways of getting the knowledge that you need to succeed in your career. I think realizing that millennials may think about higher education in a broader way than perhaps their parents' generation did is important. I'm also curious how much you think this all has to do with personalities of the men who have led the two parties since the millennials largely came of age. And that would be Barack Obama and now Donald Trump. And how much do you think is policy driven? You know, it's on issues like climate change and things that we all hear millennials care a lot about versus, you know, Obama was a leader that millennials really were drawn to, Donald Trump, not so much. I think that the, I think that Obama had a big impact on drawing young people to the Democratic Party, but it it is not only in elections when his name has been on the ballot that this has persisted, that it has, that halo has extended at least somewhat to the full Democratic Party. But for Donald Trump, he is relatively new on the scene as far as defining what a Republican is. Uh, Mitt Romney, who I view as sort of the polar opposite of Donald Trump on a whole host of personality characteristics, uh, is a, a great man, but I, I don't think you know, branded the Republican Party in a way that was, that drew a bunch of millennials in. He did better than John McCain had, but it wasn't, it still wasn't nearly enough. Um, I think what people get wrong about the personality that millennials want is everybody assumes that, that we all just want another Obama, right? Someone who's cool, someone who, you know, can appear on Jimmy Fallon and seem really funny and like he gets it. But think about two of the other political figures who have done the best with millennials in recent years, Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders. Neither of them, all due respect to those gentlemen, exudes cool, hip, like neither of them radiates, you know, MTV, <laughs> you know, right? But, Nothing but, hip. <laughs> but, but you don't doubt Not for hip. a moment That's that right. when they talk about auditing the Fed or single-payer health care, whatever their issue is, that they believe what they're saying. And I think that authenticity is so critical. Because, so I'll, I'll use an example of, of where I think things have gone badly uh, from the Democratic side. There was a tweet that the Clinton campaign sent out in, I think it was early 2006, and it was, tweet at us how you feel about your student loan debt using three emojis. And this did, it did not go well. It's, it sort of backfired on social media because it was, it, it was clearly someone who may not have understood social media or emojis or young people thinking like, this is how we'll get the kids to engage. And instead it, it just felt so forced. Whereas someone who is not, I, I don't, it, Bernie Sanders probably doesn't know what an emoji is, but it doesn't matter as right. long as what he is saying seems like it is coming from his heart. And two, he actually shows up. Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders actually go to college campuses, do these rallies. I mean, it's hard to persuade folks, especially when they go, well, but millennials aren't going to vote in my race, to go to a college campus and try to win those votes. And I don't really blame someone for doing so, but, but when you don't show up, then you're not there to make the argument in the first place. Well, the Republican Party had a, has had a hard time um, in terms of just showing up in places that 
have not been traditional Republican voters, and, and that hasn't been something that they've been very good at in the past. But if they were to show up, what, what are the sort of key issues that they could talk about that would make millennials think twice about the Republican Party? I think one, being able to talk thoughtfully about debt, which is one of those issues that's hard because it, it doesn't feel like it has immediate consequences, but I consistently see it popping in surveys as something that causes millennials a lot of anxiety, um, which is not the same, by the way, as talking about like Social Security and Medicare, because while I think those issues are very important, those feel almost unfixable. Like, it's not clear what you would do to fix those, whereas with debt, there's a sense of, like, okay, there are fewer things we could spend money on. So I think that's that's one bucket. I do think that on things like immigration and climate, we have to talk about what we on the right would do to address these issues in a way that is sensible. Um, I My advice to Republicans is not to become Democrats, but rather don't concede immigration, climate, these issues to Democrats. Make your case. Why is it that our vision for, you know, a market-based policy in the energy sector is going to lead to less carbon emissions because look what's happened with the natural gas boom? I mean, you, there are things you can say that I think we're just assume, ah, well, if I talk about climate, I'm going to be losing with young people. And then no one's ever there to make the argument, and so things fall. So an example of this, um, I remember in the 2012 campaign, Barack Obama gives an interview on MTV, and he's asked, you know, Mr. President, what have you done as president to make it easier for young people to start their own business? Young people want to be entrepreneurs. They very, have a very startup mindset. What have you done as president to help that? And his answer was great. His answer was, you know, I signed a bill that um, eliminated some financial regulations that were preventing small investors from contributing online to projects and things. So you couldn't have Kickstarter. You couldn't crowdfund because of regulation. And so I signed this bill that got rid of that, and now you have crowdfunding. It was a bill that passed out of Congress with more Republican votes than Democratic votes. It was, it was a – it's not that President Obama doesn't get to take credit for it. He signed it. It's a bipartisan thing. But why was every Republican not out on a college campus talking about, like, I gave you Kickstarter? And it was, it's perfectly consistent with conservative values, right? It's repealing bad regulation. In an Occupy Wall Street election, it was talking about repealing regulation, but it was a good message. And yet we, we weren't even out there. So I think talking about things like how can you create economic opportunity, how can you tackle some of these issues like climate, immigration, where we haven't even waded in, I think is – I think that's where we've got to start. Do you think climate and immigration will, uh, that they're just, they could just break us in terms of a party with millennials if we don't have a conversation about it with them? Yes. So I, when I was working on this New York Times column, I reached out to John Della Volpe at Harvard's Institute of Politics. He does this great survey twice a year of what young voters or young Americans are thinking. And I asked him to slice the data for me in an interesting way. I wanted to know not just how did young Republicans feel, but I wanted to know how do young Republicans who approve of the job Trump is doing feel and how do young Republicans who disapprove of the job Trump is doing feel. Because um, young Republicans by about a two to one margin still approve of the job Donald Trump is doing as president. And then I also asked him to look at young independents who on the generic ballot picked a Republican. So these are people that they are Lean functionally Republican. They just don't want the label. Right. Um, how did they feel about things? And the biggest dividing lines were, do you think that refugees present a threat to the U.S.? That if you approve of Donald Trump, by like a 70% margin, you say yes. Uh, or not a margin. 70% of them said yes. 
if you are a young Republican who disapproves of Trump or a young Republican-leaning independent, 70% said no, refugees are not a threat. So refugees, same thing with illegal immigrants. Are illegal immigrants a threat or not? 70 on the one side say yes, 70 on the other side say no. And then on climate, do you think climate change is a serious threat? Most of the Trump-supporting young Republicans said no, 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 no. But the Trump-disapproving young Republicans said yes. And so if, if young Republicans who are not crazy about Trump really do begin breaking off of the party and just identifying as the, the same way as those young independents that vote Republican down ballot, I think those are the two issues where the gaps were just yawning. It's interesting. And so you've defined some of the issues that, that millennials really care about. Tell us, as two political practitioners here, how do we reach these millennial voters? Because we all know they're not watching network TV at anywhere near the same rate as older voters. Um, you know, evidence has shown digital ads to have some limited effect. How are they getting their political news? So it is still online, but I think it's less about, you know, the pre-roll ad they see on YouTube. Um, I think it's more about content that is shared by their friends as a, hey, you need to look at this. So we were talking earlier before the show about net neutrality, and I think this is a, an interesting example of this. I, I'm unaware of, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that there were you know, paid political ads on both sides of, of the issue where you've got coalitions, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what was what's really moving people is their friend posts a link to an article that says, did you know that it's going to cost you $14 a month to use Snapchat? And even if that's not true, and even if it's badly sourced, a piece of information like that all of a sudden takes something that seemed very esoteric, an FCC debate about how do we regulate what goes through the pipes of the internet and all of a sudden makes it very personal. I saw my son and his friend sharing these uh, those exact kind of articles with each other. Yeah. And it's and what's bad is you know we're in this moment where there's so much hand-wringing about fake news and yet I don't think there's a lot of understanding that there is a lot of bad information out there on all sides of all issues that it's not just a matter of, you know, Republicans, but, it, but anyhow, I, I digress on that front. But I, I do. That's a whole nother. That's topic. a whole whole nother topic. But I think like that's an example of something where, all of a sudden, to the to the point I made earlier about all of a sudden back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, I saw all of these friends who had never talked politics before suddenly engaged and fired up for Barack Obama. Similarly, all of these friends who have never really talked politics before suddenly are like experts on telecom policy because they read, you know, one BuzzFeed article or what have you right. that tells them, oh my God, Snapchat's going to cost you $15 a month. But I think it's about people took this issue and said, here is a very tangible negative consequence that you are going to feel. And it is being caused by this person or this party or this actor that you already don't trust. And so you're instantaneously likely to believe it and then want to share it because by sharing it, you're doing a service to your friends. You are, you know, you are signaling to them, look how informed I am and I want to save you from this problem and I want to get us all together and engaged. And I, I think that is what is defining sort of millennial political engagement now is a desire, is one, a sense that there are very personal consequences to things to them and their friends. And so if you want to reach millennials, you have to talk about that personal consequence. We're not living in this land of, the esoteric, you know, ah, I want to fight big government. This was a, an anecdote from a focus group I did in 2013 was talking to a group of young Obama voters, but who said they were open to voting for Republicans in the future. 
And I said, do you think taxes are too high? And they said, yes. And I said, do you think government debt is too, too great? And they said, yes, we worry about it. I said, do you think that there's too much regulation? And they got kind of confused. And then I said, well, do you think the government is too big? And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And then one girl said, do you mean like the buildings? <laughs> that like when we, you know, when we talk about big government and we got to defend the Constitution, it's not that we shouldn't defend the Constitution and fight big government, but those are not tangible personal consequences in the way that like every time you post on Facebook, it's going to cost you $5 right. is. And so you've got to make it personal. It can't just be philosophical and esoteric. Um, and you've got to give people something that they can share. So not just like an ad that they're going to see passively, but something that they want to share with others because it makes them look good. It makes them informed. It makes it look like they are playing a role in helping their friends to also fight back against the big bad forces of evil that are doing whatever horrible thing to them. Well, and there's been some evidence that, that millennials, even though they are not typical um, off-year election voters. And as you mentioned before, they're also not really presidential election voters in many ways. Mm -hmm. But there's been some evidence this cycle that they are becoming more off-year election voters. And how do you see that playing out, especially as we think about battle for the House, but the Senate too, and, and other, you know, other races across the country? Do you see them as being very energized this year, unlike other um, elections? I think they are very energized, but I think especially young progressives are very energized to the extent that any of them may have found Hillary Clinton lacking as a candidate and sat home in 2016. There is a sense of remorse and I can't believe I sat this out and I'm not making that mistake again that I think is very strong amongst young people who lean politically left. And I don't think Republicans have a strong counter to that. Um, not only are the numbers of young Republicans diminished, but I also think when you've got a third of them that are unenthused about the president in, in their own party, that's that's not great either. Um, so I think millennials are going to play a, a bigger role than people expect because you have that sense of, of remorse among young progressives who didn't participate in the past and who really feel like there are stakes this time. There are things that can really affect me. This isn't just I'm going to go stand in a line somewhere and cast a ballot or mail in an absentee ballot and it vanishes into the ether and my vote doesn't count. I think there's a real sense of like, no, voting matters, engaging matters. I want my voice to be heard. So it would not surprise me. I mean, if you look at, you know, in places like Virginia, you saw increased turnout among sort of up, middle to upper middle class um, white, more progressive type areas or pl places that have, you know, th those are the voters that you saw the real upsurge in. So I think to, to your point earlier, um, Allie, about the, the young, white, college-educated millennials, I think especially, I think they will have a, a very large role to play in this in, in terms of turnout, as well as young Latinos, young African-Americans who in a place like Alabama we saw big non-white turnout as well reshaping that race. And so are there specific races or parts of the country where you think millennials will play an outsized role? Um, I mean, I think if you are looking at any district that includes either a piece of an urban area or a, a denser suburb, I think that's where you want to look to see a bigger impact. I mean, a lot of those districts are, are going to be fairly safe D districts anyways, mm -hmm. but to the extent that you have a Republican district that has a piece of, of a, you know, the suburbs of a major metropolitan no. area, it would not surprise me if those are the sorts of places where you see more millennials turning out. 
So it's um, not surprising we're seeing, you know, improved Democratic performance in places like Orange County, California in the polls, right? Like it's diverse, it's younger. Those are places where Democrats are polling better than I think anyone would expect right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, so, you know, let's take, let's think about a, a I'm trying to think of. This is why I think like a Salt Lake City, which is one of the yeah. youngest areas in the country, where that can start to pose a problem for Republicans, because you have such a young uh, population in a place like that, where even though that should be, those are kind of safe Republican districts currently, but I feel like they're, they are starting to change a if bit. If there was going to be a surprise, it's a place right. like that that's right. going to be where the shock comes from. What, um, you, you said a, a little while ago that um, it's not just your sort of 18 to 35 as you see that, but now it's actually voters who are even turning more into their, their mid-40s. A, a friend of mine the other day said, you know, it's pretty much um, anyone 45 and under with a pulse who is not, you know, who is trending away from the Republican Party at this point. And, and it's a lot of those, it's some of these millennials who are now, are folks who are now sort of started that will trend out um, and will grow into their 40s that you see have us having a hard time to recapture. But what are the ways that Republicans can go and win millennials? You talked a little about climate, you talked a little bit about immigration, but is there, just even thinking about this cycle currently, is there a way that down-ballot candidates can go and have a discussion with them even though there are gonna be many who their vote is going to mostly be a protest against the president? Um, but is there a way for, for Republican candidates to reach them and make them change their mind about their, about their own race? I think one thing that's going to be very important is for Republicans to push back on the narrative around the tax bill. So we are, as we record this, I believe they, they may be voting right now right. in the House. Um, and the idea that there is something out there that is going to be taking money from you and giving it to corporations, if that's the the narrative that young people hear. That is a huge, huge problem. Um, but to the extent that this actually means that young people will be able to open up their paycheck and have a little bit more in their paycheck, um, Republicans need to go out and take credit for that um, and need to explain, especially you know, to the extent that this bill is offering tax relief for folks in the bottom half of the economic, um, in, in the bottom half of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. I, I think that's very important to talk about. Um, I also think that, so if we do something to fix DACA, go out there and talk about that constantly to bust the narrative that all Republicans have the type of rhetoric on immigration that you would hear from like a Steve King. Um, you know, I, I think it's, that if, if millennials are given an impression of what a Republican is that is defined primarily by the president and by sort of the loudest Breitbart-type voices, and they don't hear that, no, there are other ways to be Republican. Hi, I'm Carlos Corbello, and I'm completely different than Donald Trump on 18 different issues, and here's why you should vote for me. Hi, I'm Will Hurd, and I'm, I, I, I'm not crazy about this wall thing, and here's why I'm different than Donald Trump and why you need to keep me in Washington. I think those are, especially for folks who themselves are younger, right. needing to make the case that there's a lot of different ways to be a Republican, and even in the Trump era, here are the ways that I am independent, I think is, is very important. Great. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to read um, a great book, pick up Kristen's The Selfie Vote, which is all about the millennial vote. Great Christmas present, right? For I everyone think so. on your list. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you. 
We have a special guest with us today, our awesome house talk researcher, Matthew Foldy. Matthew is a senior, I guess it's fourth year, sorry, fourth year at the University of Chicago. He's also the president of the College Republicans and just an overall smart and incredible millennial. So it's great to have you here and be with us. And thank you for all your work uh, that you do for me and Allie to get us prepared for the podcast. It just wouldn't happen without you. Well, it would not happen without you, but thank you. <laughs> so today, we thought it would be great to have Matthew choose the ad of the week. And um, I'm just going to kind of give a little background to the series of ads that were created um, by the Republican National Committee following the 20... Uh, 12 election when the RNC had put out put together a report um, that sort of detailed ways that they would work to improve their brand amongst various other you know various voter groups and millennials were one of them or young people and um, the growth and opportunity project um, report was one that got a lot of attention and acclaim and these ads I think were some of the first, you know, attempt to go and talk to young people in a different way than maybe Republicans had talked to them before. So here's the ad. After four years in college, I'm ready to start my career. But the job market is tough, and I've got a mound of student loans. I don't need anyone to guarantee my success, but I don't think politicians should get in the way of my future. I'm a Republican because I'm ready to take control of my future. So Matthew, what's your reaction to the spot? So I think that there is a real need to clearly do outreach to millennials. I mean, we saw in the results from Virginia that we were absolutely crushed uh, with young voters. However, while I would say this ad is better than nothing, for me, and Kristen was talking about this earlier on the episode, authenticity is really essential. I just, I just feel like this is not a real ad. These, these are real people who are all actually Republicans, but I think it would have been very helpful for me to actually have that context and say maybe since this was a series of ads, you know, we decided to go around the country and ask people why they're a Republican and start that at the beginning of every ad. Now, as Kristen was saying, we also don't watch TV a lot of the time, so it is important to figure out how to reach us, and I totally agree with her that creating content that's meant to be shared, that's not shared as an incidental benefit, is really essential. So since you don't watch any TV and you're watching most of the ads online or on your mobile device, what is it that makes you watch an ad? When you can easily skip an ad after several seconds, but what, what captures you to watch an ad? I do watch some TV, but obviously what makes me watch an ad is it being a prerequisite to then watching video content. So I'll very rarely stop while scrolling through Twitter to watch content that is listed as sponsored. I've never watched a Snapchat ad in my life. Um, so I think you have a very short time span to get me and other millennials to stop what we're doing and watch your ad. So if it looks like every other ad, whether it's for politics or anything else, we're just going to move right on because we see so many ads. So it needs to be eye-catching from the get-go. Otherwise, we're going to just say sponsored content. We don't really have an interest in looking at it. Well, for those of us who are making ads a cycle, that's very helpful. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll work out for everyone. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to House Talk. You can follow Kristen Soltis-Anderson at K. Soltis-Anderson, and you can follow her and Margie 
at The Pollsters, and you can download their podcast, The Pollsters, on iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, you can subscribe and download our podcast at iTunes and on our website, housetalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating if you enjoyed what you heard today. Finally, you can join me and Allie at House Talk Pod. We wish everybody a happy holidays, and we'll be back in the new year. Thank you.